Welcome to the Sunday Sermons Podcast. It was recorded on a Sunday morning at Morrison Hill Christian Church in Kingston, Tennessee. Our prayer is that the truths and strategies presented in this message will equip you to become a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today in the sight of God and these witnesses. Feel like you're at a wedding? I I chose those words intentionally. There's a reason. Uh, Let me say genuinely welcome to every single one of you. We're just as excited as we always are to have everybody here this morning. This is not a wedding. This is just here. But listen to those words again because this is what happens every single time we meet together. This is exactly what church is about. Dearly beloved, we're acknowledging our love for one another that we share in Christ. We have gathered here today. We've gotten together. We've taken time from whatever else we could have done or we're busy doing to get together, to do something important together. Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today. We're taking advantage of today, this moment, which is really the only thing any of us ever really have. Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today in the sight of God. He's actually physically, really, truly present here, listening, watching. And these witnesses, so are we. The body of Christ is all of us under the head, which is Christ. Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today in the sight of God and these witnesses. This is church. This is what we do. This is why we gather. This is why we get together on Sunday mornings and all the other times we meet in smaller groups. This is why we gather in the sight of these witnesses to do something that's important. And it's based on our love for him for each other and the truths that we all try to live our lives around. Each year we try to uh, go back through several of those. At this season, uh, this is the second time now that the whole church has done this and I'm excited about it, Uh, but we we celebrate for a long time with the teenagers and young adults we've done this and it's been very powerful for most of us, if not all of us. So this is what we do. Every, Every fall we start out the fall remembering what authentic faith is. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Isn't, we don't do it the same way. We're not going to preach the sermon, what is authentic faith? I just want to remind you, this is what makes faith authentic. Two things. Number one, if your faith is authentic, it is in something real. Your faith is in something real. A year ago, I used this, and I'm going to use it again because it paid off very well, and I'm so thankful. Last year, I, a year ago today, I, I, I gave this same introduction to a totally different sermon, but I, I told you that I have faith that when I go down to our town coffee shop and I get a red red eye, I will be able to make it through the rest of the day. And I'm willing to put my own money and my own time and take a break in my schedule because I really believe that's true. And it pays off because it is true. When I get a little extra boost of really, really good coffee in the middle of the day, I'm alive again. I'm ready to go. Somebody heard that. I don't know who all you guys are, but ever since then, I've had to pay for very few cups of coffee. I've got a tab at our town that I I just show up and they go, hey, John, here's your coffee. I put in a tip and I go, so thank you. Um, Pay it forward. I've heard several people have started doing that for their preachers and other people. Maybe some of you have a running tab. That was wonderful. That's loving and kind and thank you very much. But that's the idea of authentic faith. It's based in something that's real, It's it's gotta be something that's real. And second, you actually do something about it. You actually live it. This 
couple of weeks, we're going to be walking through what is, what is church? Yeah, I'm sure you've heard people say, you know, it's time to adult now. Has, have you heard anybody say that? We almost, we almost called this, this series How to Church, but I thought it might throw a few people up, like how to adult. But this is it. How do we do it? And the idea is we need to always be, always, always be pointing ourselves at everyone else back at the standard of Jesus Christ and what the Bible actually truly says and make sure that we're getting it right. So that's what we're doing in these next couple weeks. Uh, this past week, I got the huge blessing and pleasure to be able to attend the Global Leadership uh, Summit. Uh, it was a simulcasting that happened in Knoxville and, and all over the world. I don't know why this is so scratchy. Let me see if I can fix this. We may have to audio people, June and everybody else. We may have to record the second one, just saying. Try and fix this. Anyway, I had the pleasure of going to the Global Leadership Summit and uh, I'm going to share a couple of ideas with you because we've been planning on this for months and months. But as I'm listening, I was like, oh, that's better than what I had. So I'm just going to throw that out. One of the speakers was a woman named Danielle Strickland. She's got uh, her fingers in a lot of awesome ministries. But she asked us to ask this question. Um, are your deepest beliefs true? And she said to make sure because they fuel the values that drive the actions that produce the fruit that you see in your life. I'd like to read that one more time. Read, read along with me. I want to make sure you hear these precise words. It's good. Are your deepest beliefs true? Make sure because they fuel the values that drive the actions that produce the fruit you see in your life. One of the ministries that she's involved in is in Rwanda. And on one of her recent visits, she said that she went and talked to some of the church leaders there. And she asked them about a statistic that she had read recently was that in the last several years, domestic violence in Rwanda has gone down by 60%. That's a pretty dramatic jump. Obviously, 0% is the only truly acceptable thing. But 60% is progress. And she was like, is this real? Like, is, is this happening? And they go, oh, yeah, this is real. And she goes, well, how, what's the change? And they said, well, it actually started with something you said. So like, how, how in the world? And he said, yeah, it was that thing you said about our lives are like trees. Really? The guy went on to explain, I'll share more of his story toward the end of the sermon, but this is the idea of our lives that are like trees. This is going to inform the rest of what we're talking about this morning. I hope this makes sense to you. Our roots are the deepest beliefs that we have. And by deep beliefs, that means like our worldview. That's how we see the world. For example, there are people out there who believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. That all truth is just something we all make up and kind of accept, and then we kind of work by that. Absolutely nonsense. There is absolute truth, whether, we all, whether any of us get it or not, it's there. But if you, try to, if you try to base your life on something like that, and you say, I don't believe there's absolute truth, and anybody who says there is, is absolutely wrong. You've already contradicted yourself right then, at the, right at that moment. But if you say, hey, there is absolute truth, that means that it's discoverable. That means that it's out there. That means if you violate it, whether you violate it on purpose or not... You're inter you better watch out. Re it's either real or it's not. It's right or it's wrong. But you can't believe in right or wrong until you believe that there is such a thing as absolutes in the first place. And then if you believe there is such a thing as right or wrong, that enables you to start believing in what this is right and this is wrong. 
You can't get there until you start with the other. The deep roots are the deepest reality that we believe in. The trunk is our values, our moral codes, our doctrine, our ethics, the things that we use. That, so I think there is a thing, such as thing as right or wrong. I think these things are right. I think these things are wrong. That's the trunk of your tree. You with me so far? Is this making sense? Okay. And then it goes to the branches. These are the actions that we take based on these things. Since there is such a thing as right and wrong, and I believe this thing is right and that thing is wrong, I'm going to choose to do this. I'm going to not do this. There it is. And the actions is what actually proves what your values are, what your deepest beliefs are. Your actions prove that because that's what's actually, that's the kind of tree you are. And that's what actually produces the fruit in our lives. How does that get to reducing domestic violence? We'll get there in a second. Let me give you just a couple more things. Uh, here's one more example. If you believe, for example, your deepest, deepest belief as an American, okay, is that faith is a deeply personal thing. It's very personal. Don't talk about faith. Okay? Here, here's what's going to happen. I'm not saying that's right or wrong at this moment. I'm saying this is what would happen. This is your roots, your trunk. This is what's going to happen. You're going to admire strong, silent types. You're going to resent it when anyone in or out of church tries to present you with absolutes or rules. Because who are they to say that? You know, it's a personal thing. If they challenge what you believe or say, hey, you know what? I, I, I love you, but I think you're wrong on this. It's huge personal affront because faith is personal. You're going to keep to yourself. And honestly, you might accomplish some great things with your life from that perspective, but you're not going to produce kingdom fruit. You're not going to produce what God wants you to produce. You're going to maybe randomly generate some of it somehow or be part of it, and that's wonderful. I'm not judging anyone who goes there. I'm just saying Jesus produces Jesus stuff. The Holy Spirit in us produces his fruit in us. And if you're not connected, if your roots and your trunk and your branches aren't connected and getting your fuel from that, you're not getting it. You're not going to produce his fruit in your life. But however, if your deepest belief is that the church is right or wrong, good or bad, failing or succeeding, we are the body of Christ. And that Jesus gave us the great commission to spread his kingdom and to prepare this world for his return. If that is the deepest thing that you live for, that is the deepest thing, then you're going to admire those who play their part well under the authority of Christ. Whether they are actual evangelists or foreign missionaries, or they are local servants, whether they work in or out of the church to make money, but they are all about spreading the kingdom of God. Those will be your heroes. You will, if that is the roots, that is the trunk of how you live and how you believe, you are going to do everything you can do to find the part that you need to play and to play it well. And you will produce kingdom fruit because your roots go down into God. Your roots go down into actual, authentic, real truth. You are fed by the Holy Spirit himself, fueled by God's own love, and you will produce his fruit in your life. Because it's him producing it through you. Is this, you get it? This is how the early church did it. And this is why they were so effective. Uh, ju just to keep us moving, I'm going to put this up on the screen. I'm just going to read this to you, but please read along with me silently. I don't want you to miss anything. This is Acts 2, 42 through 47, the, de the, the description of the first church ever. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the flavor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So if you're following along in the bulletin insert, which you don't have to do, but just in case, we're one thing through. The next thing you're going to see also on the, on the screen, so you don't have to follow along. But this is a Bible study. If this is your first day here, we, we pass these out not just so you can follow along, but so that you can take these home and actually walk through these scriptures on your own, some of which we never even get to out loud in the sermon. But anyhow, just throwing that out. But first, what you're seeing here is what in the Greek language is called koinonia. We usually translate this, this word fellowship. But fellowship, a lot of times, especially at churches, like if you say, we're going to have a fellowship meal, that usually means a lot of really great cooking is going to happen and we're all going to eat, right? Which is part of fellowship. Uh, it's, it's a natural food. Everybody knows food is a natural thing. That's why we have coffee out there. And sometimes a few things to go with the coffee. But if you have something in your hand and it's good, it's a little easier to talk. I don't know why. That's great. So that's part of it. But it's so, it's so much more. True koinonia, the actual fellowship in the scripture, could also be translated with these words, sharing, community, intimacy. It's, it's a kind of complete unity. It's oneness of purpose. It's many different roles, but total equality. It's a bunch of people working together in harmony. Paul uses this, when, this word not just to, uh, um, he didn't write Acts, but it's not just in this space. It's all throughout the New Testament. He uses this word when he uh, talks about our fellowship with Christ, our unity with Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty close to Jesus, but I never like, you know, have a casserole with him. You know what I'm saying? It's something different than just that. Um, it's participation with Christ. And in his sufferings, when you see that, that's the same word. That's koinonia. When, when it says that one church, Paul writes that one church gives an offering to help another church that's struggling. And they bring that offering. The word offering, we translate offering, it's koinonia. It's participation, it's unity, it's fellowship, it's sharing, it's giving, it's whatever it takes to be on the same team 100% with you. And in this early church, the haves and the have-nots were, all that meant was you have a different job. There was no social status attached anymore to people's lack or their surplus. It, it was just, we're all trying to get through this together. It's not socialism, don't misunderstand me, it's a totally, totally different thing, but it, it was sharing. And a, a wonderful visual, um, visual version of this is how the Amish still build um, barns. I don't know if you've ever seen this in movies or whatever. It's amazing. If you can watch it on YouTube or something, this is a picture as best I can do this morning. But I'm telling you, this is so cool. They get the whole group together. They all pay for it together. They all plan for it together. They know this, this new family that's just formed, they're, they're going to need a barn. 
They don't have the money to build this barn. They don't have the skills to go hire some random other team of people to do this. But if we all chip in, they can have a barn by the end of next week. They all chip in. They all help pay for it. They all do the whole thing. They cook. They eat. They pray. They sing. It's a big, big deal. And by the end of one day, this new family has a barn. That's Koinonia. Rome County High School Band has kind of a Koinonia thing going on. How many have ever seen these guys work together, win awards and whatnot? Yeah, good stuff. Same thing. Relentless commitment, commitment, unbelievable hours of hot, sweaty nastiness in band camp and, uh, you know, just strict, strict, strict. We had a couple members playing this morning. But it pays off, doesn't it? And when you see them all working out there, you don't see them going, oh, my goodness, what is this stuff? It's like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're in it. And it's, just, it's like it's one big unit. All of those things, all of those things are just scratching the surface of koinonia. Koinonia is when you're all in. Koinonia is like the two UT football players that got busted for cheating. And they said, we know you guys are cheating. They said, how do you know? They said, well, all but one answer on your test was totally identical. Well, that could happen to anybody. Well, it's, it's that one that was different. Well, what was different? Well, you said, I don't know, and you said, me neither. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I cheer for UT too, but that's a funny joke. You got to admit, that's, that's a funny joke. But that's when it is when you've, you've thrown it all in. You're, you're all in together. Like, everything is going to rise or fall with the group, with the family, with the body. And this is... Koinonia is what fuels the second huge idea that is what church is. It's the word that's normally translated church, and that is ecclesia. Ecclesia is the word almost all the time when you see it in those scriptures. It's translated church, but it means several things, and I want to make sure you get that as well. Number one, it refers to the global kingdom of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's a, a capitalized in your scriptures or in other writings. It's the church. It's what Jesus said. It's what Jesus said. This is exactly the word he said in Matthew 16 when he said, Upon this rock I will build my church. He's not talking about building or one congregation. He's talking about his global church. It's what he used when he... It's also, though, talking about a smaller congregation is what Jesus said when he said, um, If you confront someone... That doesn't work. Remember this in Matthew 18? You take one person, you confront them again, then you can take it to the church. That's your, your group of people that you're committed to building the kingdom with. That's where he used it. So it's, it's both from Jesus himself. It's, it's, so a lot of times you see it as a distinct congregation. When Peter was in prison and got miraculously delivered in Acts chapter 12, it says that the church in Jerusalem was praying for him relentlessly. Okay? That's ecclesia. That's that little church in Jerusalem. Part of the great big ecclesia gathering of all the churches. In James 14, when it says that if any of you sick, they should call the elders and they should come and pray with them and anoint them and they will be healed. That is elders of a local church. It's all of the above. It's, it's, uh, it's all of this. But basically what it means, this is the key word of this whole thing. If we're going to do church, or like in the sense of we're going to adult, we're going to church, okay? We're going to ecclesia. This is what we do. We gather. And at its heart, that's really what it means. And this is where it gets scary. 
Because just because we gather doesn't mean we're doing church. Just because you turn 21 doesn't mean you're adulting. Are you with me? And it's the same thing. So if we're gathering and we're trying to gather to be the church, it's so important that we make sure that we know what we're doing and that we're doing it. In Acts 19, Paul and his friends are traveling around to build up the church, Ecclesia. As they go, they are visiting and coaching individual churches, Ecclesia. They are taking up offerings and delivering them from this church to another one, that's Koinonia. They're writing letters to all the churches. That is both Ecclesia and Koinonia. And then in Acts 19, there's this big uprising that happens. They're changing things so much that the people that are running huge businesses based around idolatry are mad. And they get this huge throng of people, this massive mob, this massive chaotic group of people. And they're going to rebel and they're going to protest and they're going to scream. And they are screaming. They're going, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're trying to lynch Paul and his friends and they're going to kill them. And it's this massive thing. Guess what they call, this what word is usually translated there, assembly in Acts 19.32. It says, the assembly was in confusion. Some of them were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Literally right out of the Bible. Guess what word is assembly? Ecclesia. Is that the church? No. It's just a gathering. It's absolutely nothing like church. The word assembly is, that's what it really means. And that's what ecclesia really means. So again, we've got to make sure that our gathering is really the gathering. It's, it's based around Christ and his principles because this can happen in the church as well first Corinthians 11 Paul writes this to the church the local church uh, in Corinth in the following directives I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good in the first place I hear that when you come together as a church there are divisions among you Notice he's saying that their gathering at this moment in time is not a gathering at all. I'm skipping a couple words here just so we can get through all of these big ideas all this morning. But I hope you go back and read that entire passage yourself later. But he says, so then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They're taking the Lord's Supper. They're serving communion. But he's saying that's not the Lord's Supper. There's no actual koinonia going on in the middle of this ecclesia. You're doing more harm than good. Just gathering is not the point. He says, do you despise the church of God? Now he's talking about the global, the massive kingdom of God sense of church. Do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? They were letting the value systems of the world control how they handled church. Not letting the value systems of the kingdom and the church control how they handle the world. Let me say that one more time because this is really important. We must let the values of the kingdom and the church control how we handle all our other business and relationships outside in the world, not the other way around. Otherwise, our gathering is not church. And if it is, then it is. Etymologically speaking, the word 
ecclesia. A lot of people see a lot of deep meaning in this, and I do too, but you may not be into etymology that much. That means the study of words. Where do we get this word and this word? How did that start? Anybody into that? Yeah, <laughs> like three. I'm sorry. <laughs> but there's some significant in this. I think it is important to know that ek means um, out of, and kaleo, which is the verb form of um, Ecclesia, kaleo means to call. So the, the ecclesia kind of means the called out ones. I see a lot of beauty in that. I don't think it necessarily, the more I've studied this, I've studied a lot this week, and I, I don't see that it originally means called out ones first. I think that's like an extra bonus beauty that God put in it as well to harmonize with all the other clear teaching that I'm about to show you in a second. Bottom line, ecclesia just means gathering, any kind of gathering, even a big mob like we just looked at a second ago. But if we are getting it right, then we can be called ecclesia in the sense that we are the ones who are called out. And this is what Paul is doing. He quotes both Isaiah and Ezekiel when he writes this line in 2 Corinthians six 17. I'd like you to say this one out loud with me. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. This idea of being called out, it may not be innately in the word ecclesia, as maybe it is, maybe it isn't, you don't even care, I don't really care that much, but this is what I know. If our gathering is going to be through this, this idea that we are separate, that we are called out of darkness and into light, that we are not walking in the darkness, we are walking in the light, that we are holy, which means pure and clean, but primarily means separate, set aside, different, special. That is throughout scripture. It's what Peter is writing about when he writes this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. For our gathering to be the church, we've got to live this out. We've got to experience, we've got to do what the early church did. If you keep reading their story, they weren't perfect. They made some mistakes here and there. We're not perfect. We make some mistakes, but this is what has to be the same. They were defined. Their community was defined by those values. Their community was defined by those deep roots and the trunk that grew out of them. That is what, who they were. They either succeeded or failed at trying to accomplish those things. They, and they produced a lot of good fruit because of it. Because God was able to flow through them. Back to the story about the guy in Rwanda. Then we're going to wrap up. Apparently in Rwanda, even among the church, it was a totally accepted thing for men to beat their wives. That was a huge part of the domestic violence problem. It was, it was, it was okay. This guy that, that Daniel Strickland was talking to was a preacher. And everybody knew that, you know, when he saw it was necessary, he beat his wife. Nobody had a problem with that. Because that's just how it was done in that area at the time. 
But he started realizing, she challenged him, she asked that question, do you know that your deep roots are true? Are the deepest things you believe true? And what are those deep roots? Because those are going to feed everything else you do. He started thinking, you know, I, I always teach about love and kindness and submission and, and, and gentleness and all these kind of things. And I, I, there's this total disconnect when it comes to me and my wife. How, what is, where does that deep stuff come from? And he remembered for the first time in a long time that when he was 14 years old, his father took him aside and he said, son, you're about to become a man. I need you to know something. When you're a husband, you've got to do anything necessary to make sure your wife stays afraid of you. You've got to maintain control. You've got to be feared. You've got to. That's what it means to be a man. And he never could disconnect that as being a lie from all the true and good things his dad had told him. He never could understand that that did not jive at all with what God taught about marriage and about love. But when he started asking that question, what are, what are my deepest beliefs and what are the chunks? Of, why is this fruit being produced that I don't like? What, what, what needs to change? What's different? That opened his heart up to being able to go, you know what? That's just wrong. Love my dad, but he's wrong. That's messed up. That's not okay. And he, he stopped beating his wife. He started investing in loving her and treating her the way Christ treats the church. He's just getting his stuff straight out of the scripture. And it changed. And all the men in his church come to him and said, what is happening in your family? Where is all this fruit coming from? And it started spreading not just in his church, but which was a huge church, by the way, but also throughout the whole community. Word got out. They're like, hey, you know what works better than beating? Being kind. Who knew? 60% of the entire country's domestic violence rate went down because one person figured out that our lives are like trees and applied that one simple, well-duh-looking kind of truth and actually lived it out. That's what I'm asking you to do this morning. That's what I'm asking us. Anything that we hear as we walk through these truths together this morning and in the coming weeks, I just hope that if you've heard it a thousand times, if it's the first time you've heard it anywhere in between, that you just take it and run with it. That's all I'm asking. Take it and run with it again. You know what I'm saying? If it's, a, it's like a football game, pick up the football again. Run another play. Huddle, run another play. Run another play. Maybe you've done it. Without, maybe it's the first time. I don't care. This is just the standard. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is bigger than us. This is not us judging each other or the rest of the world. This is just saying this is what we are called into. Authentic faith in the church is where we base everything that we do on what God says, and we really, truly do our best to live it out. Seth Godin is an um, expert in marketing. But he has something insightful to say about this, I think. We're, we're wrapping up, if you can't tell, but I think this is really important. He says, in a crowded marketplace, fitting in is a failure. In a busy marketplace, not standing out is the same as being invisible. What are we supposed to be? The light of the world. It's important that we stand out. It's important that people can tell first glance that we're living this thing out. Bosom of St. John, another one of the speakers at the um, global summit that I just got to go to. She says this. She, she's talking about a whole other context too, but it resonated with me. She said, diversity is where everyone is allowed to come to the party, but inclusion is asking someone to dance. This is the heart of the gospel. 
Listen to me carefully. Jesus doesn't ask you to just show up. Jesus doesn't want you to just gather. He wants you to dance with him. Jesus is not asking you to just believe something. To just say, yeah, I think that's true. He's asking you to try it out. And you're going to trip and you're going to fall and you're going to start again. You're going to laugh and you're going to cry and you're going to punch the wall. I'm never going to get this right. But he's going to keep dancing with you. He's not just asking you to believe it. He's asking you to do it. And he's right there with you. He's doing it with you. He's right there. That's why he used pictures like yokes. Have you ever seen a yoke? You're tied together just right. Those are just poor reflections of what happens when the way and the truth and the life gets a hold of you. The band is going to come and lead us in a song of commitment. And I I ask you this morning to just answer the question at the bottom of the insert, which is just, it's it's not even a question, it's just a sentence. Lord, I will. If, If you can't think of anything else, I'd just like you to say, Lord, I will ask those questions. I'll ask those hard questions. But my guess, my prayer is that every single one of us, me included this morning, as we're walking through this together, we're going, oh, so that needs to change. Oh, so that's wrong. Oh, so that's why I need to do this. And I would ask you this morning as we sing this song to not only stand and sing, but to make whatever choice you feel like God is telling you to make. That concludes the Sunday Sermons podcast. You can respond to the invitation you just heard where you are right now. Don't waste this opportunity to change your life for the better. If you've made a decision or are interested in learning more, please visit us at morrisonhill.com.